Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is part five in the series, The Armour of God. This is the morning session of Sunday the 2nd of August 2009, and the Bible reading is taken from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18. Here's Pastor Russ Iverson. I want to express our deep appreciation for all of you for your prayer on behalf of my uh, better half. And uh, she is making progress. And uh, thankfully, the one point that we were really concerned about, uh, infection and the incisions, it looks like at this point that there is none. And we praise the Lord for that and truly are thankful and appreciate your concern and your prayers. Uh, The brother was talking earlier about... uh, uh, when the upper taker sounds a trumpet and we get our glorified bodies. And I had that uh, most graphically brought to my attention this morning. I walked in and young lad says, why are you here again? And he said, I miss my pastor. I want him here. And he pokes me in the middle of my anatomy. He says, you may wear the same suit, but you're not as good looking as he is. So uh, one of these days when I get my glorified body, I stand almost a chance of being as good looking as Brother Curtis. <laughs> anyway, Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. But we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shone with the preparation of the gospel of peace above all taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Father, thank you for the great unspeakable gift of the Son, and of your word. And Father, we're thankful that you have seen fit to magnify your word above all your names because it is that precious word that points us to them and applies them to our lives. Father, I pray that uh, we might be able to be used of you this morning, that you'd meet a need in someone's life that Christ would be exalted. And should there be one here that knows not Christ, I pray, Father, that your word would be used to speak to that heart of their need and the sufficiency we have in Christ. We ask that you be pleased to meet with us. We ask that you'd bless in Christ's name. We pick up in verse 14. And he writes, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. And uh, we said that 
thinking back a bit, that verse 13 provided a a contrast in with verse 11. In verse 11, we found the command to put on being endososte, a command to sink into this armor. And here he is, our security against the unseen adversaries that we contend with in this life, uh, unseen adversaries in the spirit world in our warfare. But then in verse 13, our verb is analabete, to take up. We're commanded to take up. And because we are secure in the armor that God has provided, we are then able to pick up that armor and the offensive uh, armor and lean into the enemy without fear. But considering then the text that's before us, before we get into it in any kind of great detail, uh, we saw in verse 12, he said here, we, we, uh, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against, princip- uh, against spiritual wickedness. And I'm reminded again of what Paul told us in uh, 2 Corinthians 10, and verse, picking up verse 3. And he said there, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God and the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringeth into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. You know, in verse 5, we see the word, our English word, imaginations. Logismus, computations, thoughts, cogitations, conceptions, devices, reasonings. Man elevating his reasonings against the commands of God. Man elevating his reasonings and rationalizing a way that he doesn't have to obey the word of God. Doesn't have to obey the Lord. And we find that uh, we continuously lift ourselves up against the knowledge of God, continuously opposing that experiential knowledge of God. We need to keep in mind this battle is, in reality, God's battle, which is why we need to put on God's armor why we need to sink down into it and derive our strength and our security there and to put on that panoply, that complete armor that we can then obey the command to lean into the enemy and take the battle to him. But in my study and my research, I happened on to a, a list Nine ways that Satan opposes the true believer. Nine ways that Satan opposes the child of God. First being, he seeks to destroy God's character and God's credibility. Mankind's greatest strength, our greatest asset, 
is our trust in the Lord, and we have a God in whom we can place that trust. The Scriptures tell us back in Proverbs chapter 3, in Proverbs chapter 3, picking up there in, in verse 5, the Scripture says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. So what does Satan do? Well, in the very first instance, chapter 3 of Genesis, he comes and slithers down the tree and whispers in Eve's ear, Yea, hath God said. Yea, hath God said. And as it was pointed out this morning, that uh, so much has been left out of the alleged versions. That's another form of, yea, hath God said. Sowing of doubt and a direct assault upon the character of God and upon his word. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. You see the origin of Mormon theology right there. I don't want to be a god. I just want to be a servant. I want to be with him. I want to be one of those that he's pleased to live in the midst of. I'm one of the redeemed. But yet... He ascribes false motives to God, a direct assault upon the integrity of God's character. When we deny God's word, for whatever the reason, we make God to be a liar. John says, he that believeth not God hath made him a liar. We see it another way in 1 John 1.10. It says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. How do we accomplish such things? When we doubt God's goodness, when we doubt his love, we doubt his power, when we doubt his grace, when we doubt his mercy, when we devout, doubt his sufficiency, what happens when the economy goes downhill in a handbasket and jobs begin to get shaky? Do we pray? Or do we blame God? Do we trust and be found faithful? Or is it time to take a hike and skip the house of God and blame God and get mad at God? It's the way that Satan works. He sows doubt. He casts aspersions on the character and the sufficiency of God. We cast a shadow of doubt upon God's truthfulness. When we become anxious, when we become despondent, when we become depressed, when we worry, when we become hopeless, when we cast doubt upon God's trustworthiness, when we fail or suffer loss we, and blame God, we attack not only His truthfulness and His trustworthiness, but that of his word as well. Paul learned experientially 
And he could say, as he says over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and picking up in verse 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and uh, picking up in verse 7, and he says here, And lest I should be exalted above measure, the abundance of the revelations that was given me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that I might depart from me, and he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. But when I am weak, then am I strong. I think I'd be the first one to stand in queue to confess. I haven't quite reached Paul's stature yet because I cannot honestly say I take pleasure in infirmity or reproach or necessity or persecutions or distresses. But yet, when I'm at my weakest, that's when God manifests his strength. But notice what Paul said back in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians in verse 24. Paul there sets out some of those persecutions and some of those conditions. Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night a day I have been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, and cold and naked, to beside those things which are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the congregations. Who is weak, and I am not weak? He is offended, and I burn not. If I must needs glory, I will glory in the thing of the things which concern mine infirmities. And then glory comes to Christ. When we get on top and we experience a victory, one of two things can happen. First of all, Satan will use pride. And he'll take our eyes off of the Lord. He'll take our eyes off of our sufficiency and they'll put them on ourselves. Stick our thumbs in our lapels and ain't I good? We have the example of Peter. And I don't like picking on Peter because a lot of me and him. Open mouth, insert foot. I think it's Matthew 16 and verse 13. When Jesus there came there unto the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my congregation, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Upon that profession, upon that key cardinal doctrine, God in flesh. But then notice... Peter's been patted on the back. But then down in verse 21, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. For thou savest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. We get our eyes off of the Lord and get them on self. And we fail to see the spiritual truths that are staring us in the face. The things that he would care to teach us. What we see in Matthew 26 and verse 30. Matthew 26 and verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives, and saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. And Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, Yet will I never be offended. Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, That this night before the cock crow, Thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, Yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. And our Lord goes in to pray. And he bids them please to pray with him. And he comes three times and they're asleep. And then we get over a few verses further. After they've arrested our Lord and taken him in to the first of his many mock trials, Peter hadn't prayed. He relied upon his own strength. Now Peter sat without in the palace. A damsel came unto him, saying, Thou art thou also wast with Jesus of Galilee, but he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him and said unto them that were there, this fellow was with, also with Jesus of Nazareth. Again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. After a while came unto him, they that stood by and said to Peter, surely thou also art one of them, for thy speech betrayeth thee. He began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man, and immediately the cock crew. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which he said unto him before the cock crow, Thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. And our Lord had to go to him privately and restore him unto fellowship. We find another way. We get on a high. We experience a victory. And Satan tries to rob the victory by bringing difficulty. 
The temptation comes to forsake obedience to God's word and to, to God's plan and God's call. He uses persecution in various forms. The most common tactic is peer pressure. Or the fear of rejection. Or the fear of criticism from our co-workers, from our acquaintances. It'll lead many to compromise God's word. We see in Galatians chapter 2, and uh, picking up 11, verse 11, Peter's testimony, or Paul's testimony rather, about when Peter was come to Antioch. I was stood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before all that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, uh, fearing them that were of the, which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that he walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles as thou as uh, to live as, as do the Jews? Again, Peter, bowed to peer pressure. How many of us bow to peer pressure? Another area of attack is the is doctrinal confusion or falsehood. One who has either not been taught well or has not studied as he should uh, can be led astray by false teachers, false brethren. We're not to be such. In uh, Ephesians 4.14, Paul tells us here in Ephesians 4.14, and uh, he says, for this cause I, 4.14, then we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. God does not bless double-mindedness. James would tell us in James chapter 1, Picking up in verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let uh, patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. And it shall be given him, but let him ask in faith, Nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Another way that Satan works to oppose the faithful. He seeks every means to hinder their service. Paul's work in Ephesus was hindered by the actions of the adversaries he we see in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and uh, uh, picking up in uh, uh, verse uh, 8 there, he says, But I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. The idolatrous crowd gave a riot in his honor. 
accused him of turning the world upside down with his, with his doctrines. But we've spoken also of Satan's opposition to Paul's return to Thessalonica. Uh, he wrote the uh, congregation at Thessalonica in chapter 2 and verse 18. And uh, he told them there, where, uh, wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. He has that ability. Paul's physical abilities to serve were challenged. But God's grace was found to be more than sufficient. In the 2 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul records there, 2 Corinthians 12, picking up in verse 7, he said, Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations that was given to me, a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might be depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. As we yield, it's an opportunity for Christ to receive the glory. Another way, number five, Satan scores heavily by sowing discord and division among believers. In the upper room the night that our Lord was betrayed, he had to pray for the unity in that first congregation. John 17, picking up in verse 11, this is the Lord, the true Lord's prayer. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. In verse 21, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me in the glory which thou gavest me. I have given them that they may be one even as we are. But you know, just a couple of days before, as they approached Jerusalem for that Passover feast, we find that, uh, uh, that uh, there were certain events that transpired in Matthew chapter 20, verse 17, on the way into the city. And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and discourage and to crucify him on the third day. He shall rise again. He's telling them what's about to happen to them. But look at verse 20. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? And she saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit the one on thy right hand and the other in, on thy left in thy kingdom. Presumption, pride, 
But Jesus answered and said, You know not what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I, may, I am baptized with? And they say unto him, We are able. He saith unto them, You shall indeed drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. Sowing of discord. But Jesus called them unto him and said, you know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and uh, they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Earlier, he dealt with being reconciled in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. If we've got ought against a brother, if we have allowed discord to prevail, that which we do publicly as an act of worship, it loses its value. It loses its merit because there's sin in the way. Paul dealt with it at the congregation at Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 4, picking up in verse 1, he said there, uh, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Corinth was rife with it. Discord, envying, striving, suing at the law. I'm reminded of what, the, what Solomon recorded in the Proverbs in chapter 6. Proverbs Chapter 6, picking up there in verse 12, the Scripture says, uh, A naughty person, a wicked man, walketh with a froward mouth. He winketh with his eyes. He speaketh with his feet. He teacheth with his fingers. Frowardness is in his heart. He deviseth mischief continually. He soweth discord. Therefore shall his uh, calamity comes suddenly. Suddenly shall he be broken without rem remedy. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yes, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift and running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. The sixth item that Satan likes to use, he allures men by enticing them to put their trust in their, in their own resources and abilities. David got his eyes off God. 
and was uh, lured into such a trap. In 1 Chronicles 21, 1 Chronicles 21, and uh, picking up there in verse 1, uh, and Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Uh, David all of a sudden couldn't find his sufficiency in God. It carried him through countless battles and wars and solidified and unified the nation under him. No, he had to, he got swelled up in the head and had to, had to number his army so he could brag to the, the king's society how many men he had in his army. And David said to Joab and to the rulers of the people, go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. And Joab answered, the Lord make his people an hundred times so many more as they be, but my Lord the king, uh, are they not all my Lord's servants? And why then doth my Lord require this thing? Why will he be a cause of trespass in Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Wherefore Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. And Joab gave him the sum of the number of the people unto David. And all they of Israel were a thousand, thousand, and an hundred thousand men that drew sword. And Judah was four hundred, threescore, and ten thousand men that drew sword. But Levi and Benjamin counted he not among them. For the king's word was abominable unto Joab, and God was displeased with this thing. Therefore he smote Israel, and David said unto God, I have sinned greatly, because I have done this thing, but now I beseech thee, do away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. Not only did David sin, but you'll notice he caused Joab to sin. Joab's obligation was to be obedient to his master, and he disobeyed. And he lied. Pride does a lot of things to bring down our spiritual pinnacles. God said in Psalm 118.8, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in men. But similarly, we ought not be reliant upon our own wisdom. Proverbs 3.7 says, be not wise in thine own eyes, fear of the Lord, and depart from evil. Uh, Romans twelve sixteen, Paul said, Be not wise in your own conceits. Another tactic Satan has is hypocrisy. False professors in the congregation. And uh, we have a situation there in Corinth. And you know the Difficulty that Paul faced in that congregation. and uh, But in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 34, the Scripture says, Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. They, there were professors, but they did not experientially know Christ. They could profess him. They had a head knowledge, but he'd never done his work in their heart. Paul wrote to Titus in uh, chapter uh, 1. Titus chapter 1, picking up in verse 15, he said, Under the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient unto every good work reprobate. The same verb structure 
of not knowing God. We can see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 5. 1 Thessalonians 4, 5. Uh, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. Or in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 8, the same verb structure is there. But when the, uh, let's see, but how be it when, uh, then when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. A lack of experiential knowledge of Christ. A lack of experiential knowledge of God can lead us into all kinds of error if we're just relying upon head knowledge. We see in Ephesians chapter 2 and uh, verse 12, uh, Paul records there, but at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. False professors, as they did in Corinth, can wreak havoc in God's congregations, destroying its effectiveness in reaching the lost with the truth. And it robs the congregation of its spiritual power to prevail. Number eight, Satan entices believers in the world of living. They get caught up into the materialism and the self-indulgence and finding the, their, their, their uh, contentment not in Christ, but in the things of the world. Paul says in Romans 12, to be not conformed to the world. John warns in 1 John and chapter 2, picking up in verse uh, uh, 15, love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of the life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away in the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. We need to keep our focus on the Word of God and the God of the Word. But Satan's Final play. Involves all of the other eight. It's just outright disobedience to the word of God. God says be faithful. Satan leads to unfaithfulness. God says live morally. Satan entices to immorality. God says be truthful. Satan tempts with lies and we believe the trap. We believe the opening wedge. A little white lie. Uh, I don't know about you, but there are no little white lies. If it's not truth, it's sin. God says, love. Satan sows bitterness that ferments into hate. God says, be content, Satan says. Sows covetousness, covetousness, which dethrones God and is in fact, as Paul says, idolatry. Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, picking up verse 5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, 
and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Wherefore there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. And as Paul pointed out to the congregation at Ephesus, he broke down the middle wall of partition. He created a whole new race. No longer Jew, no longer Gentile, no longer black, no longer white, but Christian. Christian. Find we have the command. In Ephesians 6, 13, and he says there, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil of the day, and having done all to stand. We are to stand. But in order to stand, we need the whole suit. We don't, it's not like going to Asda or to Tesco where we can pick and choose. Go down the fruit aisle. I'll forget the apples. I'll have pears today. It's not like that. We're to take the whole suit, to sink down in it, and then pick up the offensive weapons and lean into the enemy. When you lean into the enemy, it doesn't give him room to maneuver, but go back. He doesn't have the opening wedge. He doesn't have the opportunity because he's on the defensive. Are we leaning into him? Have we sunk into that armor that's our security? Have we picked up those offensive weapons and put them to use? Or are we picking and choosing? Or are we allowing ourselves to be led astray? down a primrose path that doesn't have any semblance of the truth. Father, thank you for the opportunity to consider some things. Father, find us faithful to the truth. Find us faithful to be in the Word of God, applying it to our heart and to our life. Find us faithful to it that we might be fully cognizant, fully awake, fully alert to the tactics of our enemy who walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Father, find us vigilant. Find us watchful. Find us leaning into him, lest he break free and outflank us for we have no armor at the back. Father, I pray, drive us into your word, for therein we stand and find our sufficiency and find our strength to stand. And Father, as we 
get into the girdles tonight. I pray that uh, you'd instruct us, you'd grow us, and get us out and find us faithful. But Father, if there's anyone here this morning, that as Paul said about some in that congregation at Corinth, that have no experiential knowledge, they've never put on Christ, or they may have had knowledge, but they've never come to Christ in spirit and in truth. If you've spoken to such a heart this morning, I pray they've not put it off. We'll see one of these men, that the old word of God might be opened, and that they might come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Father, have your perfect will and way in each and every heart, each and every life here this morning. We'll be careful to give you the praise and thanks in Christ's precious name.